you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to the book of Revelation. And if I can get my helpers to hand out, I have uh, sermon notes with uh, notes on the front and a map on the back. I thought it might be helpful as we're talking about these seven churches, if you can get an idea of where they are in proximity to each other and in Asia Minor. Our text this evening is going to be Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. It is sufficient. It is authoritative in our lives. And it is completely without error. Revelation chapter 12. Or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my, fa- my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would use your word in our lives, not only to teach us, but also, Lord, to mold us and to change us, to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're now in the third of the series of seven letters of these churches located in Asia. We've looked at the letters that were sent from our Lord Jesus Christ to the church at Ephesus and the church at Smyrna. And just to remind you, the church at Ephesus was commended for being a church that held fast to the orthodox teachings of the faith. They held to the articles of the faith. But at the same time, our Lord criticized them for losing their first love, for not being fervent in their commitment to the gospel and to the expansion of the kingdom. And then we looked at the Lord's letter to Smyrna, which was a church that was poor and small, but it was spiritually rich. It was a church that was persecuted, but a church that stood firm for the faith delivered to the saints. And so now this week we look at a different church, a church in Pergamum. 
Pergamum is uh, a city that is located north of Smyrna and Ephesus. And it is a church that had its own problems. And so again, we will look at three things in this letter. The first thing we will look at is the circumstances of Pergamum, the circumstances of the church and the city and the address from our Lord Jesus. Secondly, we'll look at the criticism of that church from Jesus Christ. And then finally, we will look at his command to the church, a command to them to repent and overcome. So their circumstances, the criticism they receive, and the command that comes to them from the Lord Jesus. Pergamum was a city that was located in the western section of Turkey. If you look on the back of your sermon notes, you will see the seven cities laid out in red. You will see on the bottom of the western side is the church at Ephesus. And then as you go north is the church at Smyrna. And then as you go further north is Pergamum. And then you go east to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then finally Laodicea. And it has been said by many commentators, I think with good force, that the reason these seven letters are written in this order is because this route that I have just described to you was an ancient mail route. This was actually the way in which a mail carrier would deliver these letters, first to Ephesus and then up the road to Smyrna and over to Pergamum and so on. So Pergamum is third for a reason. It is the church that is third on the mailman's list. As I've reminded you before, we need to resist the temptation to look at each one of these churches as some kind of very specific type of church and where we pick out which church we are most like. Because remember, each of these letters was read in each of the churches. Each church would hear seven letters. And so there is something for us to learn in all of this. Well, Pergamum was located, as I've said, in western Turkey. And it was a city of great power and interest. You see, the last king of the city of Pergamum did an odd thing in his last will and testament. He willed his kingdom to, the, to Rome, to the late Roman Republic, which would become the Roman Empire. Now, there are many reasons he might do this, but suffice it to say that Pergamum became a part of Rome from a very early point in time. Rome made it, actually, the capital of perhaps the wealthiest province in all of the Roman Empire. It was the capital of Asia. Now, I know when I say the words Asia to you, you're thinking of Japan and Korea and China, but really, in the Roman Empire, in those days, Asia was western Turkey. It was a land rich in spices, silk, trade. Many of these cities that we have seen are wealthy cities because of this. And Pergamum was the capital of this place. And as a result, Pergamum was perhaps the second most, the second strongest, the second most powerful seat of Roman imperial authority in all of the empire. Rome would be, Rome itself would be where Roman rule would be strongest, but after that would be Pergamum. It was the capital city. It was ruled by the Romans. They were in complete control. 
And so this is very much a Roman city, not a Greek city, not a Jewish city. It is a city ruled by the Romans. Now, John describes for us what Pergamum looks like in his day as he's writing this letter. And it's not a pretty description. Verse 13, Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. You see, Pergamum is described as the place not only where Satan is is found, not only where Satan is located, but where his throne is. Pergamum is a place where the devil has real power. One man said, I think with good wisdom, that hell is the place of imprisonment for Satan. His throne is in various places on earth. He seeks to exercise his power and his authority here on earth. Now, why would Pergamum be seen as the very throne place, the very power center of Satan? I think there are three reasons. First, Pergamum was known for its temple of Zeus. Imagine, if you will, a city located in a, in a mountainous region. And at the top of the highest hill, the top of the highest mountain, is a gigantic temple set up with great pillars to look like a throne. And on it is an idol of Zeus. And 24 hours a day, animal sacrifices are made to honor Zeus. This was the very throne of the pretender to God. Zeus, all-powerful, he was called. This was the pagan alternative to the God of the Bible. And he was found there. His throne was found at Pergamum. There was also another idol that was worshipped at Pergamum. It's an idol that you know many things about. The idol's name, the god's name, was Asclepius. He was the patron deity of doctors. Have you ever wondered why, as you look and you see medical symbols, you see this staff with a snake around it? You ever wondered why doctors would have snakes? It's because the god of medicine was Asclepius. And if you wanted to be healed, you went into his temple where there were all sorts of non-poisonous snakes. And what you would do was you would lie on the floor in the temple and the snakes, over a period of time, would slither over and around you. So suffice it to say, I don't think Indiana Jones would ever want to get healed. Neither would I to have snakes crawling over and around and under me. This was the god of medicine. But you can also see that there is an obvious corollary here. Who else is represented by the serpent or the saint? Who else is represented by the serpent even in this book as we see later in chapter 12 and in chapter 20? It's Satan himself. And you see, this was the seat of the god Asclepius. So two great idols here. Two great idols to influence the culture Two great idols to combat the work of the living God. But there's a third kind of worship that went on in Pergamum, and that wouldn't surprise us either, as Pergamum was the second most powerful imperial city. It was a place where emperor worship 
was found commonly. You remember I said that Smyrna had a little contest in, with other cities in which they won the right to build a temple to Tiberius, the second Roman emperor. And that that was a very big deal. Well, that was small potatoes to Pergamum. Because you see, Pergamum got to build the first temple ever to a Roman emperor, to Caesar Augustus. They would look at Smyrna and say, copycats, we invented this emperor temple stuff. We invented emperor worship. Here is where we worship the emperor for all of the good that he brings into our lives. Now, imagine that that's the context in which you're ministering. A gigantic mountain throne to the Greek god Zeus. A throne room for a temple filled with snakes to the god of medicine. And the place where the emperor of Rome himself was worshipped. This was the context in which this church had to minister. What kind of a church was it? Well, we don't know a lot about it, but we do know a few things. The first thing is, contrary to many of the uh, descriptions of churches that we see in Acts, this church appears not to have a strong Jewish presence at all. This city is primarily a Gentile city. And so the church was, would be made up primarily of Gentiles. We're not really sure even who founded this church. Our best uh, estimate is that this church was founded as the word of the Lord spread and boomeranged and blossomed out from Ephesus through Paul's ministry in Ephesus described in Acts chapter 19 and chapter 20. It was in the radius of Paul's ministry. So another thing we know about this church is it's not identified with any apostolic ministry. No apostle came and spent two years training men. John didn't. Paul didn't. Matthew didn't. Peter didn't. It was a church that simply received the word of God and were to some extent left on their own. This resulted in a struggling church. They had struggles from outside the church through persecution, through intimidation, and they had struggles within the church as they sought to follow the will of the Lord and to follow God's word. Now, if we think about this, isn't this a pretty good description of the modern American church? A church that's beset from enemies on the outside? And the danger from outside is perhaps only overcome by the danger from inside of bad teaching, of lack of fellowship, of lack of mercy and service. That's what this church faced. And our Lord Jesus Christ knows this. He knows it's a struggling church. He knows it's a church in danger. And so he addresses them in a way that is unlike many of the other letters. Look with me at verse 13. He begins, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. He begins by saying, I know where you are and the situation that you're facing. In almost every other letter, Jesus begins with, I know your deeds. Here he begins with, I know what you're up against. I know the challenges that you face. But at the same time, he doesn't begin with a customary line of comfort. If we look here at 
the letter to the church at Ephesus, he is the one, in verse 1, who holds the seven stars in his hands and walks among the golden lampstands. To the church at Smyrna, he is the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. Words of encouragement. To the church at Pergamum, he is the one who has the sharp, two-edged sword. That is not exactly fluffy comfort language. Jesus comes out immediately describing terms of judgment. He does not come with a word of comfort. Why is this? Well, I think first it's because Jesus knows that all is not right in this church. This church needs action. This church needs to repent. This church needs to walk away from the dangerous path it is on. And he also knows that action needs to be taken for the church's sake. If they don't move off of the path that they are going down, if they don't cease to tolerate these sins in their midst, they will be destroyed as a church. And so Jesus is coming to them immediately to get their attention, to let them know the danger that is before them. Now, we do this all the time, don't we? When you see your children playing too near the road, do you say, Honey, sweetie, could you please think about coming over here? Or do you say as you see them playing near the road, Hey, get out of the road, now! Right? You want to grab their attention. There's time for softness and love later, but there's danger. Jesus sees that. He knows it. And so he's calling the church away from this dangerous path. He is the one who bears this two-edged sword. And what is this two-edged sword? What is this weapon of judgment that Jesus has? Well, isn't it the Word of God? He is the one who bears the Word of God. As Hebrews 4 tells us, the Word of God is like a two-edged sword dividing between soul and spirit, between the joints of the bone and the marrow. The word of the Lord is like a sword that goes forth in battle. It is a part of the armory that we have as the people of God. And this is just like what Jesus describes in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16. There is a two-edged sword that is sharp that comes out from his mouth. It is a word that pierces and divides and judges. Some have even gone so far as to say the reason that it is two-edged is because we have an Old and a New Testament. I don't know about that, but I do know that the sword of the Lord is the Word of God. And here the sword speaks of judgment to remind us that Jesus is both a Savior and a judge that he is the Savior of his people, but he is also the judge of the universe. And I think there is also a little bit of a play going on here, specifically for the sake of Pergamum. You see, Pergamum was a place where Roman authority was very powerful. And there were few places in the Roman Empire where the Roman governor or the leader would have what was called the right of the sword. It's that right of the sword that Paul refers to in Romans chapter 13. It's the right to mete out capital punishment. Do you remember in the later parts of Acts 
where Paul is in prison and they want to kill him and they find out that he's a Roman citizen and they get all afraid because they might have executed or hurt a Roman citizen, they have to send him back to Rome for trial. One of the other places in the Roman Empire where the governor could mete out capital punishment was Pergamum. And so Jesus is reminding us that even in a place that thinks it has authority, his authority is final. Isn't that helpful to us as we think about so many pretenders to authority and power in our midst? Jesus is the one who judges the nations. Well, this is the circumstance in which this church finds itself. It's in a a hostile city with difficulty in its midst and Jesus Christ coming with the word of judgment. And that word of judgment begins with criticism. He does acknowledge that they hold fast to his faith and his name. But he says these words in verse 14 that very much cut at the soul of Pergamum. But I have a few things against you. Could you imagine hearing that from Jesus? I have a few things against you. Your mind would swirl. What have I done wrong, Lord? How can I work harder? How can I do better? What do you want from me? He says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. And then he says, you also have some who practice the teaching of the Nicolaitans. He says, I have some things against you. And the first is, you compromise with the world. You have some who hold the teaching of Balaam. Now, what is this teaching of Balaam? Do you remember the story? I think most of us who have any background in Bible stories in Sunday school remember the story of the talking donkey, right? How Balaam rode and how the the donkey wouldn't go where he wanted it to go. kept beating the donkey and finally, by a miracle, the donkey looks back and says, Hey, you want to cut that out? I know what I'm doing here. But who is this Balaam and why is he on the donkey riding? It's because Balaam was what you call a prophet for hire. His job was to go around and for the highest price, he would bless or curse you or your enemies. And so Balak, the king of Moab, had seen what the Jews had done, what Joshua and his army had done to the Amorites, how they had wiped them out. And he was afraid. He was afraid of Israel and afraid of the God of Israel. So he thought he could come up with the perfect trick. He wanted to hire Balaam to come and to curse Israel so that then he could win. He'd hire himself a cursor. There was only one problem. Every time Balaam opened his mouth to curse Israel, he blessed Israel instead. Because what's in control of All of the universe and history is not some prophet for hire, not the scheme of a king. There is a who in charge of history, God himself. But some things that we often forget is that after Balaam failed, he came up with a backup plan. He had plan B. And plan B was to get the women of Moab to intermarry 
to have relations with the men of Israel and so to drag them into their pagan practices. He was going to spoil the barrel of apples, as it were, by putting rotten apples in with it. Israel fell for this for a short period of time until Phinehas and others threw off the idolatry of Moab until the women were put out of their midst. But it was a plan that was designed to get Israel to compromise with the world around them that they might become less, that they might be destroyed. And this is what Balaam did. And this now is what is happening in the church in Pergamum. There is compromise with the world. What kind of compromise? What does it look like? Well, he says, Balaam is trying, the sin of Balaam is to try and get them to eat food sacrificed to idols and to practice sexual immorality. Now, when we think of food and idols, I think we often think of Paul's famous admonition that it doesn't matter if you buy food at the local butcher that was sacrificed to an idol. That's not what's going on here. What is going on here is not simply eating food that has already been sacrificed to idols or, or dedicated to idols. What is going on here is eating food, being involved in pagan rituals, feasts, practices, going to other uh, religious worship services. It's not unlike what we see today, is it? Where we have interfaith services. We try and feel good about ourselves and we get a pastor and an imam and a rabbi and somebody with a flowing robe and they all say how wonderful and good everyone is and how everyone believes in all the same things and how we should all be nice to one another. But you see, that is what destroys a church. That is what destroys the work of a church in God's kingdom. And it's happening here in the midst of the church at Pergamum, and they're letting it go on. And do you notice Jesus says, he doesn't say, I know what you are doing. He says, I know you are tolerating it. You should be disciplining these people. You should not allow this to happen in your midst. But it's not just compromise with the world that is happening. There is also an antinomianism that is going on, a rejection of God's law. You see, that is the error of the Nicolaitans. It is closely related to the error of Balaam, but it's the kind of error in which people said to themselves, well, I believe in Jesus. I went up that one day during the campfire and said that prayer. Now, I can do whatever I want. If I want to cheat on my wife, God will forgive me. If I want to steal from you, God will forgive me. If I want to lie to all of y'all, God will forgive me. So I can go about and do whatever I want. You see, obviously what that error is, it doesn't take the change that Jesus brings about seriously. It doesn't take the calling of Jesus seriously. It is a perversion of grace. It is grace that is no grace. It is grace that is license. And so what is happening here is you have a church where some in the church are compromising with the world and others are living lives that are contrary to the word of God. And Jesus comes to this church and he says, you should not tolerate this. He says, this is not just about the few in your midst doing things. This is about you keeping your, core, your house in order. And this is the way we must treat these serious matters even in the church today. Why discipline is important. 
Discipline is important to restore the sinner, but it is also important that the purity of God's church might be kept and that Jesus' name might be lifted on high and not be slung with mud. Paul put it this way, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And Jesus is telling the church at Pergamum, you must cut out this cancer before it kills you. So this is the circumstance in which Pergamum finds itself, the church finds itself, and the criticism that our Lord levels at them. So where can they go? What are they to do? Is there any solution to be found? Jesus brings them the solution in the form of a command. And it's a surprisingly simple command. It's actually only one word. Repent. You see, sometimes we think when we get ourselves in these difficulties, there's no way out because it's so complex and we don't know where to turn and how many things are involved. When in reality, oftentimes, the simple solution, repentance, turning away from sin, turning toward Christ, is the solution we need to solve our problems. It is a very clear command. There is no nuance to this command. There is no inability to understand it. You don't even need to know Greek or Hebrew. You just need to hear the clear call of Jesus to repent. And if we didn't understand it, if we didn't understand the importance of it, that command to repent is accompanied by a warning. Jesus says, Therefore repent, and if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. You see, Jesus says, you must obey me or there will be consequences. Why is this? How does toleration of this sort hurt the church? How does toleration hurt our ability to minister to others? Well, I think really in two ways. If we tolerate sin in our midst, we are tempted to sin. But I think it also hurts our ability to reach the lost. Let me see if I can give you an example. If you had a friend that was trying to quit smoking and they came into your house, how easy or difficult would it be for them to quit smoking if as soon as they came in and sat at their table, you lit up in front of them? Or you had a friend over who lit up right in front of them? The temptation would be overwhelming. They would wonder why they would be changing. They would be confused. And this is what happens when the church doesn't stand firmly for the word of God. Those who are outside the church, those to whom we bring the gospel, look at the church and they say, why should I be bothered? They're no different than the world. As a matter of fact, the divorce rate in the church is higher. The theft rate is higher. Why should I be bothered to jump through all of the hoops of the church. Why should I be bothered to submit to this Jesus if there's no difference, no change? You see, when we tolerate sin in our midst, it's not just about how good we look. It hampers our ability to bring the gospel to others. And that should make us sad. That should make us concerned. That should make us motivated to be killing sin to be servants of the gospel. Jesus tells this church at Pergamum to repent, and he gives them 
a promise of overcoming. He says, To the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone and a new name. Who is the one who overcomes? Does this require some kind of strenuous training? Do we all need to now go out to the gym and pump some iron so we're ready to overcome? Is this only for certain types of Christians? The one who overcomes is the kind of Chuck Norris of Christians. The one who can beat anyone who can have a Bible verse ready in a single bound. No. I think the overcomer is simply the one who believes in Jesus. That's what John tells us in 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5. The one who overcomes, overcomes his sin, overcomes the world. And he does that because Jesus has already overcome. That is the one who overcomes. You and I can be overcomers. We can have the prize that is set before us simply by believing in Jesus. We can have the hidden manna that identifies us with Jesus Christ. He who is the bread of life, who is food for our soul. We will commune with Him and be with Him forever in that great feast in all eternity. We will have the white stone. Now, a white stone could be one of two things. In ancient days, when you had a trial, you would have a vote whether someone was guilty. And if you thought he was innocent, you would put a white stone in. And if you thought he was guilty, you would put a black stone in. And they would count them up. And so here this white stone speaks of the innocence of the people of God because of the judgment passed by Jesus. But there's another sense in which a white stone was used in ancient days. It was kind of a ticket to important events. So if you were involved in the athletic games and you won the equivalent of the gold medal, you got a white stone so that at the next day's festivities, everyone knew you could get in. It was your ticket in. And so here I think this white stone speaks not only of our innocence, of being declared not guilty, but I think it describes for us the ticket that we receive to eternal life because of the actions of Jesus. He gives to us the ability to enter into His Father's house. We need not climb over the hedge. The gates are open. We go in as children of God. And then finally, we are given a new name, a name that marks us with membership in the community of the redeemed, a name that only the redeemed know. This is fellowship with Jesus. Do you see what Jesus is getting at here? He says you can't tolerate sin. You must be active in discipline and you must do this to overcome that you might be with me forever. This is what Jesus wants for us. You see, in conclusion, we must realize that we are not the only people who face challenges in the world. The church at Pergamum faced challenges greater than we do. But we must stand strong even as our Lord told them to stand strong. We must stand on Jesus Christ even as they were told to stand on Jesus Christ. We must overcome by the power of Christ that we might be with Christ forever in eternity, blessed with communion with Jesus. Do you want communion with Jesus? Then you must overcome. 
Do you want to overcome? Then you must believe and you must rely on the one who has already overcome. The King of kings. The Lord of lords. The Lord Jesus Christ. 